should never feel guilty for wanting to be happy. Well, hello, beautiful people. Welcome to Crime Over Cocktails. I'm your host, Tiffany, and this week I have special guest Diana Winkler. She not only overcame a cult, but also domestic violence. Well, welcome. I'm very happy to have you on the show. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. You know, I keep hearing more and more stories that are all coming from ministries and things of that nature. And it really blows my mind because everyone thinks that's a safe place, but it's not always. Right. Is that where you met your husband through church? I met my now ex-husband in the singles group at the church where I was baptized and got called into ministry. And yes, there is a perspective that if you meet your spouse in church, then you will have a good marriage or you'll find a good mate. So uh, needless to say, that that is not true. There's got to be a lot more selectiveness and investigation before you go and just pick any Christian out of the church or somebody that professes to be a Christian. Right. But you said you saw no signs of anything abnormal until you guys got married. Well, there were some red flags, but I ignored them. Uh, He was full-blooded Italian, Catholic family, very good family. Uh, but he had a temper problem and a mood swing problem, which I thought it was because, okay, he's Italian and, you know, that's normal. But I didn't see that in his immediate family. His, his mother and father were not like that, and his brother and sister were not that way. So I should have seen that. And my mother noticed some things, like we had dinner with my mom and and my ex wanted me to get up and you know he's tapping his glass that he wanted his drink refilled and he wanted seconds on dinner and my mother was like you know his legs aren't broken he can get his own drink and get his own seconds at dinner now of course they teach you to be a, a servant and you know even when we were dating it was you know, serve your man. And for the most part, I believe that, you know, to have a servant's heart. But also, I believe it's the husband's role also to serve the wife. So, uh, but that (laughs) didn't happen It's a hundred and (laughs) hundreds. Right. It's a hundred and hundred is not, well, one takes and the other one gives. And so there were a lot of red flags a lot of controlling. Um, I would do things like confide in him, something very, very personal. And he would flip out and use it against me. He would go and jump in his car and run around the block because he didn't like what I had said, which was extremely personal. This was before we got married, and it was 
always um, controlling what I did. And there was a lot of pushing us together. The church youth group or the singles group, it's always they want you to get married. And so you sit next to somebody in church and they're they're like, oh, these guys are going to get married. And (laughs) it was a big pressure to get married, especially when I was in Bible college. It was you wanted to get married so you could go and be a missionary or, or pastor at church. And so there was a huge amount of pressure to do so, even if you see the red flags. My mother-in-law, when we got engaged, which that's another story, we had gotten in this huge fight the night before my birthday. And the next day, I didn't know that he had bought a ring and he was proposing to me at my birthday dinner. And I was like so mad at him for what happened the night before. (laughs) He was, you know, apologetic for what happened before. And then he, you know, gave me the ring at dinner and yeah, I should have said no, but my mother-in-law, they wanted, you know, their son to be married properly because I don't know if this is with every church, but you know, the church that I went to, you got married at the church and then, you know, the fellowship hall was where you had your reception, right? Or in my, my case, my family, we would rent out the, uh, you know, the American Legion building and they would have a beef and beer wedding, you know, finger sandwiches and stuff. And my mother-in-law, it was, that wasn't good enough for her son. And so they said that they were going to pay for the wedding, which turned out to be $35,000. I found out. And so we had gotten into a few other squabbles between getting engaged and getting married uh, the discussion about birth control was on the table. And he, um, he said, oh, I don't want to have kids right away. And I said, okay, I'm fine with that. And so I went to the doctor and I went on the pill. And the doctor said, well, it should be, it should be working by the time you guys get married. It just needs, you know, one cycle through. And so I got, uh, I uh, got with my, fiance and and said that I was on the pill and it should be fine. Well, he got all bent out of shape because his mother told him that the pill wasn't going to work by the time the honeymoon came and that, you know, he didn't want to get me pregnant yet. And so he was stating that he wasn't going to have sex with me on the wedding night because he didn't want to get, he didn't want to get me pregnant. And I said, now listen to me, I got my medical information from a doctor. Where did your mother get her information from? So already it was like, I'm I'm banging heads with the mother-in-law now. Well, it seems like you're competing with her. Well, it wasn't competing, it was false information. I'm like on the phone with her. I said, what are you doing? Now my my fiancé doesn't want to have sex with me on my honeymoon uh, because you gave incorrect information. So that's, those are the kind of things that started out. Uh, and I had thought about it because my mom and my sister didn't like him. And they're like, I don't think he's good enough for you. He's too controlling and too uh, misogynist. I didn't even know what that was. And, but that whole thing about my mother and father-in-law, they, they had like 
three, 300 people they invited. They invited everybody. Wow. And well, when I, I said you were competing, of, I didn't mean like you wanted, I mean, she was going to make sure she always went above and beyond. Like everything oh, you yeah. were ever going to do was going to be compared to her. Yeah. Go big or go home. And again, this is an Italian mother. So, you know, have you ever seen my big, big fat <laughs> Greek wedding? It's very, very similar to the culture. And so, but you know, they're, they're good people. I, I, and you know, there, there's always a, an adjustment with, you know, joining a new family. It was smothering because it's a very big, very close, huggy, kissy family and very nosy and the whole, the whole culture that goes with it. And, it was a huge adjustment, but I, I liked this family a lot. They were very loving and, and fun. And, and so, so that was the, um, that was the engagement part. <laughs> so there was red flags. I just didn't listen or thought, well, I can't break it off now. My name's already <laughs> on the tea towels. <laughs> right. That's what Princess Diana said before she got married at King Charles, you know. I can't get married. I can't leave the marriage now. I got my name's on the tea towels. Um, <laughs> so the, 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 the wedding and the honeymoon was a nightmare. <laughs> uh, we got married in a blizzard. There was a blizzard. Ooh. We got married in Pennsylvania and it was in the middle of a January blizzard because we got married on school break. We were both in college and that must have been, that should have been a sign to me. God was trying to tell me something. I sent you a blizzard. And I'm trying to, you know, my grandmother got lost on the turnpike and um, people couldn't come because they got lost or they couldn't deal with the snow or whatever. But uh, we had, I had the wedding and apparently the car broke down, the car that we were going to use for, the getaway car broke down the day of the wedding and he was in his wedding shirt and suspenders underneath the car, fixing it on, on the day <laughs> of the wedding. That should have been another sign. I got married that day and I was, um, I was really nervous. Um, but I wanted to be a good wife and go into the marriage and make it the best that I could. And, so we went to the reception and it was, it was a big, a big to do, a big shebang. And we were going to a hotel nearby and then we were going to drive. We were going to drive to a bed and breakfast, uh, the next day. And yeah, we, we did, we did try not to get graphic here. <laughs> try not to get graphic. But we did, we did have sex the first day, night and, and then we, we, we drove to the bed and breakfast and, and the car broke down again. <laughs> and he was fixing the car again and we didn't have any tools. So he, you know, the bed and breakfast, they had a couple like wrenches and hammer or something. <laughs> Anyhow, um, the whole the whole thing with a honeymoon, of course, is that you are you're supposed to get to know each other. We didn't sleep together before we were married. We neither of us were virgins, but we were saving ourselves 
trying to honor God, you know. And he kept saying during the honeymoon, do we have to do that again? And I said, well, this is what a honeymoon's for. Yeah, I see the expression on your face. Yeah, this is what what you get. You get married and, and the honeymoon is to get to know each other physically. And again, uh, to not get graphic, I was showing him how my body worked. And because before the wedding, he would boast that he knew my body better than I did. And and uh, I said, well, I highly doubt that. But he, you know, one of those over-promised and under-deliver kind of guys. <laughs> yeah, I've been <laughs> with all these women, and I know everything about women. Well, I was just kind of pointing some things out. And he got so mad at me. That's so angry. It's like, I'm the man. I'm supposed to push the buttons here. And I'm supposed to be in control. I'm supposed to, you know, make the fireworks go off. And he got up from the bed and he got his clothes on. And he did his um, leaving the bed and breakfast. And he's driving around the block. Or I don't know where he drove, but he was gone. I'm left behind at the bed and breakfast, like crying, like what just happened? And I realized I made a mistake in marrying this man. I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't, you know, like I didn't insult his manhood or say that his penis was small or anything like that. It was nothing that he should have gotten upset about. So I was in the bathroom and taking a bath, and he finally came back. I think it was a few hours. and But I was praying while he was gone, and I thought, well, we got married, and I want to take my vows seriously, and I'm just going to make lemonade with you know the lemons that I've been given, and maybe things will get better. So he came back, and he said he was sorry, but that was a pattern that would continue through our marriage. The whole uh, avoiding intimacy kind of thing. That's that's what would be a, a pattern on top of all the other abuses. Um, so we had come back from the honeymoon, and we went back to school, and we got married during football playoffs, so that probably wasn't a good idea because he was a football <laughs> fanatic. And so it was two weeks we were home from the honeymoon, and he um, he was watching watching the games all the time. And we hadn't been intimate at all since we got back. And kind of wondering, so I was walking through the living room with a negligee, and he was like, you're blocking the set. And so I called up the the lady at the church that did our, our marriage counseling. You had your pre-marriage counseling. And I said, is there something wrong with me? Because he doesn't, he doesn't want to be intimate for the last two weeks. And, you know, well, and she said, well, just put on something really pretty. And I said, well, yeah, I, I did. But he told me to go away and. He would prefer to watch football and she's always oh, probably stressed out and you know just give him some time he's probably tired and you guys went back to school and everything and so okay so it, it again it just it was a repeat of that and then the mother-in-law came to visit us at the apartment she came because we lived in 
Virginia to go to school. And um, his parents lived in Pennsylvania. And she came down to give us all the wedding gifts. And she wanted to watch us open all the wedding gifts and make sure that I had written the thank you notes in front of her. <laughs> and as soon as oh she got into God. the... Yeah, as soon as she got into the um, the apartment, she asked where my coat rack and my because my coat was on the back of the chair in the kitchen. And I said, we don't have a coat rack. We don't have a coat closet. I didn't raise my son to put his coat on the back of the chair. And I'm like, excuse me, this is my home. Don't right. put the coat it's on the back of my chair. Not on the floor. <laughs> not on the floor. So, yeah, she was like picking on me and, you know, and this is a typical mother-in-law thing about the, you know, the, you know, the white glove test, right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, there's laundry in the laundry basket, and there's dishes in the sink, and it's like, so. But anyway, it was, and she's like, "Are you, are you in a bad mood?" And I said, "No, I just don't like somebody coming into my home and then starting in on me." Uh it's <laughs> so. Yeah, we opened all the gifts, and then she she left. But, uh, of course, I couldn't say anything bad to his mom because that was his mom. And so I had to be quiet about that sort of thing. But we were in Bible college to go to the mission field. So I was in my junior year, and he was, I think, in sophomore year when we got married in he decided he was going to drop out because he didn't think that the teachers were as smart as he was. I uh, wanted to finish school. <laughs> That's a classic narcissist right there. Oh, yeah. I wanted to finish school. So I I asked if I could quit my job to finish finish school because I had, I had failed one class. And so I had to take an additional class on top of what I was already taking. And so... He let me do that for six months and so I could graduate. And then we were supposed to start uh, planning churches when I finished school, which we did. So that that was the start of our marriage. Not a very good one. <laughs> but it oh was, gosh. yeah, it was very controlling from the beginning. Yeah, the story story goes is that we were supposed to plant churches, which if you don't know what that is, it's pretty much starting a, a church from scratch. And he did not want to go overseas because he didn't want to learn a language and he didn't want to leave the United States. So we decided we were going to do church planting here in the States. Now, one of our Bible college teachers decided to start a church outside of town of the um, the city where we went to college. And so he decided he wanted to go and help. It's okay. I like, I liked our teacher. And so that was the, the start of the, the church planting. And we went from, let's see, that was Virginia. And then we went on vacation in New Jersey um, Ocean City was really popular, and we, of course, good Baptists always go to go to church on vacation. I don't know if anybody <laughs> else does that, but you did not miss church at all, even on vacation. 
So we 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 found this church that was um, on our route home from the beach, and it was an inner city church on the edge of uh, what we call the Myrtle Capital of the World. <laughs> and so we, we went to the church. It was really, really small, and they needed a youth pastor. And so by the end of this, it was like, oh, well, I want to leave the church that we helped in Virginia, and we want to start. I want to help this pastor start. Well, the church was started, but it was very, very small. And I said, I want to come and um, be the youth leader, and then uh, I want to... Um, help build the church because they were meeting in a really tiny building and they wanted to physically build the church. And so we, we picked up everything. We moved to New Jersey and that was probably one of the darkest times of my marriage because there was no privacy. This was a very legalistic, very controlling church. Uh, women did not have very much value besides, okay, having babies, raising children, and serving your husband. You did not work outside the home, and you didn't have any leadership roles in the church. So that was a big deal. And, uh, I mean, nice people, but the, their values the aren't very nice. Yeah, it was a lot of legalism, like the pastor would preach that you weren't allowed to have a television. The television was from the devil, and uh, this was right when the Internet started, the World Wide Web, and, of course, that was the devil, too. So it wasn't anything about, okay, you know, you have your own spiritual discernment, and you are the priesthood of your own home, and you make the decisions based on prayer. It was, this is what you did not do. Whether I've got a Bible verse or not, women did not wear pants. You know, men didn't have beards. It was like all these rules about how you had to dress. And I had a really hard time. There was a lot of financial abuse too. Uh, They would have this thing called Give It All Sunday. And I've never heard of any other church that had this Maybe maybe I'm wrong, but they had this give it all Sunday where, and this is a poor town, keep in mind, inner city, poor town, and uh, they didn't even have proper money for shoes for their kids or dental work, or some of them were on welfare, and the pastor would get up on the pulpit and say, you need to pledge your entire paycheck to the church. And he would keep the service going until everybody pledged to give their paycheck to the church. Now, that's that's spiritual abuse right there because the Lord only asks for 10% of what we have to give to the church to support our church. But What would happen um, if somebody said they didn't have it? They would say, you need to have faith in God. And he's going to provide for you and you put the Lord first. Yeah, that's a great question because that's a lot of manipulation that has to go on because <laughs> these folks didn't have anything. And so I told told my now ex, I'd say, I'm not going to do this because we cult. have rent to pay. Yeah, we have rent to pay and 
What am I supposed to tell the landlord? Because he lived next door to us. What am I supposed to tell the landlord when we don't have the rent? They're going to boot us out. We don't have money for the electricity because we gave it to the church. No, we're not going to do this. And it was really horrible because you didn't have any privacy. If you were sick or you didn't want to go to church that day, uh, they would come to your door. <laughs> they would look in your windows and call you on the phone and ask you where you are. Uh, <laughs> so we would turn all the lights wow. out and go up in our bedroom so they would, wouldn't be able to see us on the second floor. <laughs> but it was, yeah, we didn't have any, any privacy at all. And they didn't pay us much. They don't pay you very much in the ministry. So we, we both wound up having to get jobs. Uh, he had a job, um, fixing electronics, which was really bad. And I went and got a job at FedEx, which his, a lot of his family worked for FedEx. His mother was one of the original founding members of FedEx. And so she had retired from FedEx and then his cousin was a driver and he had, my ex had worked for FedEx also. So I went and got a job at FedEx and it was really well paying. And oh my goodness, I, I stood up in church and gave a, a testimony, a praise that, oh, I got a job at FedEx and that's so awesome. And you could have heard crickets. There was right, no clapping, no praise work. work. They, oh no, they were really like, well, you shouldn't be working. And my husband would say, well, we don't have any children. There's no reason why you can't work. What are you going to do, bake cookies all day? Well, pastor's wife wanted us to, which which I did before I started with FedEx. I would go out soul winning with the ladies, and they would we would knock on doors and lead people to Christ in the inner city where there were bullets flying over our heads, and it was a... Not a very safe place to be. Um, and I even pointed that out to the pastor's wife. I said, well, we're going to go on the, the school bus. And there was hardly any gas in the bus. And we didn't take any men with us for uh, in case somebody grabbed us. There was, what, five or six of us going. And the pastor's wife just said, we just have to have faith that God's going to protect us. I was like, you know, God gave us a brain <laughs> to, okay, we need, we need to have somebody come with us and make sure we're safe and we need to put gas in the car. And, and this was when we didn't have cell phones that we carried with us all the time. You had, if you had a cell phone, it was for emergencies because they charged by the minute, like $2 a minute. And oh, my, wow. yeah, my I husband, remember those days. Yeah. <laughs> I'm dating myself. My husband had the cell phone at, the, at that time. And so none of us had a cell phone. And, and so we went soul winning and, and nothing happened. And, um, but that's, that's the kind of church we were at. <laughs> that's not a church. That's a cult. That's yeah, like that's a cult. Yeah. Almost Scientology level ish. I, I wouldn't say. say it was bad as Scientology, but it was definitely manipulative. It was definitely. We found out by accident that we heard it from somebody else, not the pastor, that they had hired another couple to take over our job as the youth pastors. 
we found this out from somebody else. And it was like, they lived outside of town. And um, we found out that the pastor just announced it in church that these were going to be the new youth leaders. <laughs> we're just we're sitting in the church pews like, what is going on? And so it was really, it was really bad. And his, my, my husband's job was going really horrible. And then all this stuff going on at the church, which I got tons of more stories, but I'll pivot to the, the worst part of this church was he, he was really depressed because he didn't like his job and he hated the church and being oppressed. And then our marriage was kind of on the rocks too. Cause I was just doing what I was told. We went to the doctor because he was sick and the doctor put him on the diet and we, we came home and I made dinner and I made, I made pie, apple pie for dessert. And after he had the first piece of pie, he says, I want another piece of pie. And so you, the doctor says you can't have another piece of pie. And so right then he stood up and he said, I'm going upstairs and I'm going to blow my brains out because I have nothing to live for. Because we had we had guns in the house. I stood at the bottom of the stairs like, what just happened? Obviously, this is not about a piece of pie. And I was trying to decide whether to go up those stairs. And this all happened in a nanosecond. Like, he was God, throwing a tantrum. I? Well, yeah. I didn't know if he was bluffing. Because that's what he did all the time. He would bluff to get his way. But, well, he's never done this before. Maybe I should just let things pan out and, you know, maybe that would fix my problem. But then I heard the Lord say, you should never take a, and we're trained, we're trained to not ignore a suicide attempt or suicide threat. And so I thought, well, I guess I'm going up those stairs, God, and I don't know what I'm going to find when I get up there. So I walked down this dark hallway and walked into the bedroom, and sure enough, he was standing there with the gun to his head. And I was like, hey, what's going on? Let's talk about this. This isn't about a piece of pie, is it? And so, of course, he laid out all of his complaints about, you know, her marriage is in trouble, and, you know, the church is, all the stuff that's going on with the church, and, and I hate my job, and I said, um, well, we can work through those things. He said, well, I think I'm just going to end it because I don't have anything to live for. And I said, no, I know we have a lot of problems, but I would miss you if you if you died and your family would miss you. Uh, and it took me, I don't remember all the things that I said, but it took me an hour to get him to put it down and to come downstairs. And I was shaking. I was scared to death. All I could think about was if he was going to pull that trigger or not. After we went downstairs, I called our sending pastor who baptized us. And I told him what happened. And he says, you need to, you guys need to step down. I said, well, he doesn't want to do that. He doesn't think that it was a very big deal. I should have called 911. I made a lot of mistakes. And I didn't know anything about mental health then. We didn't talk about mental health issues in the church. That didn't, 
depression was a sin. Uh, anxiety is a sin. Taking um, taking medication was a sin. So we didn't get taught or trained in mental health. So I didn't call 911, which I should have. I didn't tell anybody else except our sending pastor. But I, I told my husband, I said, you know, maybe get some help. Oh, I'm fine. It's not that big of a deal. And so he would get upset when I'd bring it up in the future. Well, you're not going to go and go upstairs and put it and hurt yourself, are you? And he's like, oh, I'm never going to live that down. And I said, well, you, you scared me. I would have been we, scared, we, too, if he yeah. would have turned it around on you. Yeah, that was another thing. I had no clue if he was going to turn the gun on me because his cousins did that. His his male cousin was a postal inspector and came home and found out his wife had been having an affair and they had three kids upstairs. And he shot his wife and then shot himself while his kids were upstairs. And so that that was what that definitely went through my head that he doesn't want to be married anymore. We, we decided to leave the church because I said, we, we don't have a job anymore. They, this couple came in and took our job. So there's no reason to stay here. And so we, um, we went to another church near his parents' house. And that seems to be a better situation, but still the same denomination. We had to drive an hour to church every day and they wanted, oh. They're, they had a really small church. It was an old church, and they needed help, too, and so we decided to help them. His job that he was at in New Jersey, which he still commuted to, um, wanted to transfer him. And so he had a choice whether to transfer to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, or uh, transfer to Arizona. And I, did, I think there was one other choice, like Seattle. And so... <laughs> I said, well, my parents live in Arizona, so why don't we pick that? Maybe that will be a new start for us. So he decided, okay, we'll we'll move to Arizona. And so that's where we got a temp- temporary rental. I'll tell you what, the, the abuse doesn't change, even if you change locations. It was a little while before we were actually in full-time ministry again of course we were we joined a few churches you know we were lay people for a while until um until we found a church that we were doing any ministry at the the abuse didn't get any easier the abuse got harder it's hard to describe an abusive marriage when the ongoing thing out in the world is especially in the churches if he didn't hit you it's not abuse and that couldn't be farther from the truth. Absolutely. Abuse is control. Abuse is taking away your choices. So there are many different kinds of abuse. There's emotional abuse and verbal abuse. There's psychological abuse. There's financial abuse, which we've already talked about. There's spiritual abuse, which we already mentioned. Uh, you can make somebody's life a living hell without putting a finger on them. There's sexual abuse. Yeah, he never laid a hand on me, but he definitely had that temper we talked about. And he would fly off the handle for things like 
okay, I didn't put gas in the car or I didn't fill the water jug up in the fridge or the dinner wasn't to his liking or the house wasn't clean enough. I could never really measure up to his mom's standard. His, his, his mom was a stay-at-home mom, raised them right. But um, uh, yeah, it was never clean enough. The food was never good enough. And the issues with the intimacy were still going on. We were probably only intimate, I'd say, once every three months. And, wow. uh, yeah. And I, and the marriage is not all about sex. We all know that. It's, that's just part of it. That's the icing on the cake. But when you have a, an abusive marriage and then you have no intimacy, it, it can make things really miserable. Well, right. It's about companionship. Yeah. There was not really any companionship. It was, he would say things like, well, you're supposed to be, we're supposed to be best friends. Well, when I confide in you things about, you know, what I'm struggling with spiritually or, you know, something I working on or praying about or whatever it is, uh, and you use it against me, that's not really what a friend would do. Yeah. There was a lot of, a lot of control. So many, so many things to control. He would tell me, what kind of job that I'd have to get, what kind of car I can drive. He, he would call me from, I don't know where and say, Oh, I got a car for you. Well, I don't want a car. I don't want the car. It was, it was a stick and it had the seat belt that goes across and uh, there were wires poking out of the backs, the back of the seat. You know, you, you couldn't, you couldn't lock it from the inside and shut the door. You had to use the key. All this stuff, right? And it was a old car. And he said, I'm going to have you drive this. And he got to drive the new car. Those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Like, no, I don't want the car. And he says, oh, but it's only a thousand bucks. And it's a good car. And I said, don't bring it home. I don't want it. And he brought it home, of course. I drove it until it blew up. And I told him I wanted a different car. I hated his stick, by the way. <laughs> I can't they, drive a stick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can, but I didn't enjoy it. A lot of, a lot of controlling. Now, I, I left out that I was a, you know, I've been a musician since kindergarten, and the reason why we met was I was singing a solo at church when we met. Um, I also didn't explain that I was in you know, music class, taking voice and piano lessons. And he heard me sing at church and he had done some music producing with some Philadelphia bands. And he was like, oh, you should uh, record an album. And, you know, back in those days, you couldn't just go out and buy equipment and record an album. You had to have studio you need to know somebody that had a studio or you'd pay studio time. He had the equipment in his house and we had it in our house for many years. And he would do everybody else's album, but mine. He's the one that put this in my brain, right? You know, I'd sing it, you know, while we were planting churches and starting churches, he would, he would say, um, 
Uh, what do you want for Christmas? Oh, well, I would like my album to be finished. And they'd say, well, who would want any, who would want to listen to you singing? You're not all that. You're nothing. You're not, you're, wow. You think you're that in a bag of chips. I said, well, people enjoy me singing at church, and I'm a trained singer, and they're always asking when the album's going to come out. And so he'd always put off all these excuses why he wasn't going to do the album. And that was just another way to control me. Absolutely. I think, he wasn't going to give you that glory. I mean, I didn't do it for the glory. I'm just trying to be a blessing. But, the, the you know, 13 right. years but of marriage. It's something you thing. enjoy. Right. So. Something I enjoy. So he didn't want me to enjoy that. Yeah, him and my sister never got along, and my, my sister moved to France. I wanted to go to France for since grade school because I, I learned French started in, in grade school, and I, I took French all up through high school, and I wanted to go visit my sister, and those two hated each other. So he forbid me to go and visit my sister. I said, well, why? He said, well, I don't like the French people. I don't like the French government. And if you go to France, you'll never come back because you would probably leave me. I just want to visit France. I just want to visit my sister. I never got to go while I was married to him. I had worn bottle cap glasses from seventh grade. And I wanted to get LASIK surgery. That was, I mean, it wasn't brand new, but it was, it was safe enough that, you know, a lot of people have, have already done it. And he said, nope, I'm not going to let you have LASIK surgery because the doctors are going to butcher your eyes. What? This is common as cataract surgery. I mean, that's ridiculous. So, yeah, he wouldn't He wouldn't let me get LASIK surgery. We started ministering to a church. We, we joined a church. I went on staff at the church. I was the pastor secretary at the church. And which that was, that was an experience too, because my husband would have these mood swings at the church. Remember those little mood swings and he'd go and zoom around the neighborhood? Well, he would do that at church too. When you get upset. He let other people see it. Yeah, he did it right in front of people. And my, my close friends knew everything that was going on, but I was like, yeah, there he goes. Having one of his mid swings. When I was on staff at church, it was it was terrible because the, the ladies at the church um, would judge me based on what my husband was like. So I never really had a chance, and they started rumors about me. And they told the pastor that I was giving confidential information to people in the church, and uh, I never did that. I couldn't even do that with my own husband. And he would ask me, what about so-and-so is pregnant out of woodlock? What's going on there? I'm like, I can't talk about it. It's confidential. It's, it's a counseling. Because I was across from the pastor's office. I could hear everything. So uh, the pastor fired me because mm. somebody, somebody accused me of, uh, I think it was the pastor's wife. The pastor's wife didn't like me either, <laughs> Uh, so we, we left the church because I got fired from the church. So we went and visited another church that we were there for a while and worked in the bus ministry. 
same same kind of church. All these were fundamental Baptist churches, very legalistic. And somebody came to visit, a missionary came to visit at this church we were at, just doing the bus ministry, and I was singing in the church as usual. And the missionary says, oh, we're going to start a church in the Ritzy, this Ritzy town next door, and we need people to help out. So, of course, my husband says, oh, we're going to pick up and go and help help him. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, so it was, it was kind of the same thing. This pastor we were helping out had liver disease. He would only do the natural stuff. He wouldn't use any of the modern medications. The The church was on the back of his house in this wealthy neighborhood. And the, the pastor had this truck and he had a sign on the back of the truck and it had, you know, repent because you're going to hell. And, and he had all these Bible verses of fire and brimstone, right? And it was embarrassing, to be honest. I mean, I, um, you know, I'm a missionary, but I, I don't beat people over the head with it. And, um, right. and we would have like church services and the four people that were in the church in the beginning where we were all saved and he would have these like invitations and he would draw them out and, well, maybe you are, maybe you aren't saved and you just think you are and you need to come forward and repent. And anytime we would bring somebody, you know, visitor, we invite our friends to church, you know, he would scare them away. <laughs> and so we went on vacation and, and uh, we realized when we went on vacation that this, we weren't getting fed and this pastor was a, a lunatic. And so we decided to leave. It was after probably a year and a half we were there and the church hadn't grown past its four members. Yeah. So I got more stories about that guy, but, uh, we went back to the original church where we were at before we, you know, went to the help the missionary. And that was a church we were at when I decided to leave. It came on the 13th anniversary and, you know, we attempted intimacy. That's what was expected. And I, you know, I'm, I'm leaving a ton of stuff out, but literally we collided by accident. It was, we zigged instead of zagged and we collided. And it was very painful and we were both yelling and in pain and all this stuff with the marriage just came to, came to a head. And I said, just forget it. He went into the living room and I just went to bed crying as usual. And you think that, you think that I didn't try, but I, I dragged him to three different marriage counselors too. And you know what these marriage counselors would tell me? What? As I dragged him in, kicking and screaming, uh, the marriage counselors would say, you know, Diana, if you were submitting to your husband like you should, you wouldn't have any marriage problems. Oh, no, no, I said, excuse me? Are you going to deal with any of the other marriage issues here on the table? Um Right. You know, and then meanwhile, the, my husband's like sitting here with his arms crossed, like, don't tell me I'm a sinner. Don't, you know, don't give me any homework. Um, it's all her fault. 
And so, yeah, I, I think the last few years of our marriage, I was really depressed because I realized I was trapped. We had a church ministry. We were missionaries. We, you know, the church doesn't believe in divorce for any reason. So I was like, okay, I'm stuck in this marriage. He doesn't want to go to marriage counseling anymore. I stopped reading my Bible. I stopped praying. I was just going through the motions. I was doing the church stuff, but I was just going through the motions. And I, the heads collided. And I said to myself, I cannot live like this any longer. I've got to get out of here. And I told God, I don't care what the consequences are. I'm getting out of here before it kills me. And I called my one of my girlfriends the next day and I said, um, I told her what had happened and she knew, she knew everything. She says, you got to get out of there. I'm tired of you calling and talking to me about your abusive husband. You need to get out of there. And I said, well, I can't. The church won't let me. And she says, who cares? I said, I'll lose everything. Well, so what? You'll start over again. And I actually thought God was going to have, (laughs) you know, I had, I had a nice house, a nice car, a nice job. Uh, What I didn't have was a good marriage (laughs) an abusive marriage. And she said, you know, God's not going to stop loving you because you leave your abusive husband. You need to get out of there. You need to do it now. And that was really the first time I realized one, that I was being abused because I really, I really didn't know until then that I was, it was actual abuse because there was no hitting and that she was right. I need to get out. God isn't going to stop loving me. I knew those verses. And so I made the decision to leave. I knew my husband wouldn't let me leave. So I waited till he, he, uh, he went back east for, to visit his family. And that's when I decided I was going to leave. And that was four months wait. Four months of behind the scenes trying to um, a place to stay, you know, getting a, a cell phone and, you know, all these preparations behind the scene to leave. Started packing up my stuff. And I was terrified I was going to find out that I was leaving. And I lost my job two weeks before the date he was supposed to go to his trip. And I freaked out and I called my other friend. She was my best friend at the time. I said, what am I going to do? I just lost my job. I got laid off. I was in the dental profession. This was 2008 during the, um, you know, the crash. And she said, well, you have to leave now. If you don't leave now, you're not going to get another chance. So she said, you can stay with us until you get on your feet. And so I put him on the plane, just pretending everything was fine. Good for you. I went home and I packed all my stuff. And my friend came to get me. And I served him the divorce papers while he was out of town. (laughs) Surprise! He had no idea it was coming. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, so now all of a sudden he wanted marriage counseling, right? And so, yeah, like, no, then they'll say everything that you wanted just because now they can't lose. So now you're the chase. So, and once he has you, 
all that's going to be out the window again. Do you think he was cheating on you at any time? Yeah, there's a few other things that that happened that I have no idea. He started a business for commercial sound, and he was doing business with gay bars and swingers clubs. And I asked him, what preacher would do business with those kind of places? He says, oh, well, I'm telling them about Jesus. And they're really respectful and all, because he would hang up TVs and he would do this, you know, put together a sound system or whatever. And I was naive. I, I think I was naive, but I believed him. But when we were at one of our other anniversary trips, he got really sick and could hardly walk. And we went went to the doctor, and he had some sort of a discharge and didn't know what it was. So the doctor took tests, and I wasn't with him, took tests and said to my husband, and the doctor said, do you have something to tell me? Because... I think you have a venereal disease. And he said, I don't have anything to tell you. I haven't done anything wrong. And he says, well, then your wife has. Your wife gave you the clap. Now, this is before the test results came back. So he uh, he came home and he is mad as a hornet. And he's like, you know what? The doctor says you gave me a venereal disease. I said, wait, 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 wait a minute here. What are you talking about? So the, he he took a swab of my discharge and um, I said, no, I didn't give you the clap because I don't have anything. I know I don't have anything. And so the test results, I, we had to wait till they came back. And I was so angry with that doctor because he put that into his head before this, the test results even came back. Well, they said the test results, this is what my husband told me. Um, I have diabetes. I don't have a venereal disease. My sugar was so high that it was seeping into my blood and into um, all my other body fluids. And so, yeah, of course, he went on diabetic medications. But I never really knew for sure if that was the truth. I never knew for sure if he was out there cheating on me with the swingers club or the gay bars. And the gay part is, and I have nothing against the gay community, but I I don't want to be married to a gay man. Um, But I came out and asked him because, you know, him avoiding intimacy all these years, um, I asked a bunch of my male friends who I trusted, and I said, is there something wrong with me that he wouldn't want to have sex with me? I was 120 pounds my whole life. And uh, he and my friends would say, no, there's nothing wrong with you. Maybe he's gay. So I would go and ask him, um, you know, I don't care either way, but are are you gay and you just don't want to tell anybody? He goes, oh, no, I'm not gay. You know, they're sinful. They're weak. They're whatever. And I know even if he was that he would never, ever admit it because of his his family would disown him and course the church would discipline him so i would you know i let it go so i I never knew if he 
um, if he cheated on me. But all I knew is we had a, a loveless marriage and that he kept asking about wanting to have children because it was like about probably five to seven years into marriage, people kept, you know, asking when we were going to have kids because he came from a, a huge family. Say when we have sex. <laughs> like you, you have to have an actual sex life to have kids, you know? Um, and they would like, well, that was personal. Um, well, you asked a personal question. Uh, so, yeah, I went through with the divorce because, well, when the divorce papers were served of course he wanted he wanted counseling and so our pastor called or he emailed me and asked me as a favor to come for a marriage counseling session and he knew he knew what was going on because my ex had told him i said well preacher i'm going to go through this divorce Either way, but I'll do it as a favor for for you. And he said, well, you got his attention. You pulled the rug out from under him. And I said, I know, but this is a this is a um, a pattern for him. And so, yeah, I went to one counseling session and I walked in and crying and doing the crocodile tears. And he apologized and said how wrong he was. And then. Uh, we started in on the counseling part, and uh, he was like, what about this? And what about you doing this? And you, it's, this is your fault, and blah, blah, blah. And all the issues that we had in our marriage, it was the same song and dance. I said, listen, you're not taking ownership of your stuff. You're putting it all on me, and we're not going to get anywhere. And so... I said, I forgive you. I don't mean you any harm or wish you any bad ills, but I do not want to be in this marriage anymore. It ends. It's it's ending today. That was 13 years in the making. That's a long time. Yeah, I gave you 13 years of my life, and I told the preacher, I'm I'm going through with the, the divorce. And so, yeah, and he tried to stop it. Pretty sure God um, would want you to be happy, not miserable. <laughs> Well, you get, this is why women get stuck in abusive relationships is because the church says, well, God hates divorce and you should not, you know, it's a sin to get divorced. And, and they're not really reading their Bibles or putting the Bible in context. They take passages out of context to keep women under subjection. Yeah, I won't get into it all, but. There was divorce in the Bible. The law of Moses allowed for divorce. Women were not allowed to divorce their husbands. So all those commands that Jesus spoke about in the New Testament about, you know, not divorcing your wife, it was because these men would divorce their wives for burning their dinner and go and find another wife. And women didn't have any rights in those days. I don't think that Jesus or the Lord, our Father, would want us to be, or our children to be abused. We didn't have any children. I look back on that now as a blessing that um, I didn't want to raise children with him anyway. 
Yeah, they would have been belittled as well, and they would have grown up with complexes, and it just, it's the cycle. It's the cycle. I didn't want to raise children with him anyway, but I don't think I would have been able to leave. It would have been a lot harder to leave if I was um, with with children. Um, so I'd, I'd like to say that that it was an easy road leaving. Yeah, I lost I lost my job. So I was out of work for six months and I did stay with my friend. But I did lose everything. I lost my church. Lost all my friends because they took sides, you know. All your church friends who think that divorce is a sin. And of course your ex husband goes around and telling everybody that Well, I wanted her back. I wanted to stay married and she left me. Okay, well you didn't tell them the whole story. You just Right. Well, trust me, those aren't your true friends. No. True friends are the one that said, pack your bag, I'm coming. Yeah. I had three true friends that helped me. Yeah. I won't get into the going into the dating. Um, That was a nightmare because I hadn't dated anybody since I was 20. I would say... Stay off of the dating websites, even the Christian ones. There's a whole lot of predators. Uh, so, agreed. That was a nightmare. The date, the dating world. I met all kinds of people, just like my ex-husband. And, uh, but I did know that God had a plan for me, and um, He wanted to create something good that came out of this. I found a church finally after looking that uh, accepted me for who I was and was not legalistic. Gave me a little bit of counseling. I wanted to start a ministry for those that went through the same thing I did. I thought I was the only one that was in church ministry that had an abusive husband. Because we all want to put on that fake smile and a plastic mask on. Oh, everything's fine. We got it all together and praise Jesus. And then we get home and then it's a whole different story. I thought I was the only one, but I found there's a lot of us out there. Absolutely. Um, where I tell you what, the churches want to sweep the abuses under the rug. And every church that I was a part of, they did not want us. I wanted to start like a Bible study for women or um, some kind of ministry for, for those that were survivors like me. All the doors kept shutting because abuse isn't sexy, folks. <laughs> it's not. It's no, not a it sexy topic. Isn't. <laughs> Nobody wants to talk about it. And it couldn't happen to my church. Fast forward to I've I met my now husband Brian uh, on a dating website of all places. <laughs> I think the Lord just brought us together because Neither of us are really looking. We just kind of, oh, we have a lot in common. Let's let's um let's hang out. And we were married six months later. Didn't you just so say we, to stay off of those? <laughs> yes, I did, and and I would say to stay with that advice. I I really think, regardless of how, regardless of the method we would meet, we would have been together. God would have found a way. He just apparently used that particular one. 
And I know there are those listening that probably met their spouse on eHarmony or something. We're the exceptions. <laughs> and there's a lot of, I guess there's a lot of predators on those sites. But we were looking for a church to serve. And my husband is an abuse survivor too. So uh, it wasn't until we joined the church that we're at now that they had Mending the Soul. And because I, I talked to the pastor's wife and I said, um, her name's Sarah. I said, Sarah, I want to start a women's ministry for uh, abuse survivors. And she says, we already have one. She said, it's called Mending the Soul. Have you heard of it? I said, no. So she invited me to, to be a part of the, um, of the group, which was 16 weeks long. And I went through the group as a survivor and um, processed all that trauma and abuse. And uh, it's a curriculum. It's, it's faith-based and it's psychologically based. And uh, worked on my worked on my stuff. And I tell you what, I was so impressed with Manning the Soul that I went and trained to facilitate my own groups. So that's what I do now is I I lead these uh, many in the soul groups for you now they do have groups for men also and um, groups for women separately. I've never seen anything like it. It has changed my life and those that have been with me. I will also add the, the music ministry that I've always had. I did record that album after I left. Good for you. My first solo album. I did get LASIK surgery. Um, these are reading glasses. I did go to France twice with my now husband, Brian. Yeah, and I have a, uh, a music ministry. So I record and perform music for uh, for those that need healing. So uh, I know that I probably gave you the long version of the story, but... <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> I left out a ton of stuff, but believe it or not, that's the Reader's Digest version. Um, was there anything I left out you wanted to know about? <laughs> I'm just curious how big that uh, priest's house was in New Jersey. <laughs> um, Forgive it all Sunday. <laughs> you know, I have to say that he, I've been in his house. It was not fancy. He lived in town. I will say he he did not drive a fancy car. He didn't have fancy clothes. So I think that he did use the money for the ministry. I'll give him the credit for that. But I just felt that it was wrong for him to ask the congregation in that manner. But I, I think he really Absolutely. did use it for for the church. Because he, he did not have a Oh, a fancy lifestyle, but good question. <laughs> uh, well, it's so great. I'm glad that you now see what you were able to leave behind. It's so important. People need the courage to be happy. It's all about finding your own happiness. If you're with somebody who is doing the complete opposite, you got to get out because it just destroys you internally. Well, it does. It it messes up your your spiritual life because you think, well, God has 
God caused this to happen. Why didn't he rescue me? And that isn't true. God doesn't cause the abuse. He doesn't enjoy seeing you going through the abuse. Um, but unfortunately, we have free will. Our abusers have free will. And we need to find our value in Christ that we deserve to be treated like a human being, as a valued individual, as a child of the king. We don't deserve to be beaten or raped or and somebody committing suicide in front of you, that's abuse, folks. That is extremely traumatizing, as you heard. And people think, well, I I deserve this. No, you didn't. You didn't deserve to be treated that way. And if you study the life of Jesus, Jesus ministered to women and to the oppressed. Yeah, he yelled at the Pharisees and the religious leaders and um, a couple of rich folks. But he was always trying to minister to those women. The women served with him. The, the women <laughs> spread, spread the uh, evangelism all over, spread, spread the gospel all over the world. So if you're listening today, you deserve... You deserve to be safe. You deserve to be to be loved and respected. And God has a plan for your life. So I will help anybody who, who needs. Yes, don't give up. I know that and we don't compare we don't compare stories or abuses, but there are some really terrible stories out there. Some of them are worse than mine, I would say. Oh, but you can get out. You can get out. I will help you any way that I can. That's why I started my ministry, uh, which is dswministries.org. That's where you can find out about joining a Mending the Soul group in your area. Uh, that's free, by the way. Um, that's where you can find the music. What else? Oh, the podcast. <laughs> Got all about the podcast. I started a podcast <laughs> two years ago for abuse survivors. That was a result of the Mending the Soul group. They just they needed more resources. So I have a podcast as well called um, The Wounds of the Faithful. You can listen to it on uh, YouTube and any other podcast platform. And I have... Um, I have to talk about my own personal story in detail, and I have other survivors telling their story, and I have industry experts to help you heal. That's what it's about, is how do I heal from this trauma and abuse that I've suffered? Absolutely. And we talk about our, the spiritual side of it, too. How, how does God really see us? How we can how we can hear, heal spiritually too and renew our relationship with God that is super important. So I talked your ear off probably enough here. <laughs> no, you're good. No, I appreciated having you on. I mean, this is good stuff. Like, that's the whole part of it. Let people know that you're you're not alone. This stuff does happen, and it's not the end of it. <laughs> It is not the end. If you would have told me 10 years ago 
15 years ago that I would be where I'm at now. I would um, would not believe you. Uh, so reach out to me. Yeah, I believe that. Reach out to me on social media. Um, DSW Ministries is my handle. And uh, my email is diana at dswministries.org. So I appreciate you having me on the show. And hopefully this will help somebody out yes. there. As always, I'm going to ask you to like, follow, subscribe, and leave a five-star review. It actually matters more than you think it does. And that way you'll know when new episodes come out. Make sure you head over to CrimeOverCocktails.com. It's your one-stop shop for resources. You can listen to the episodes right there, and you can learn a little bit about me. All right, you guys, we'll talk crime another time. Bye.